I love those words. Uh, May God add a blessing to the hearing and the doing of his word, um, which is what we want to get, gather around just for a short time this morning is, is this story that uh, Terry has um, so beautifully been reading from the Gospel of Mark. As you know, we're in this series, which is following the Epiphany series, um, the Epiphany season, and we've called it Look to the Light, and uh, it's helping us to pay attention to, um, the light of what, to the light of God in the world, pay attention as we look upon the story of Jesus the Christ, um, what is revealed to us about uh, what he is about and the nature of God. In a sense, we've described Epiphany as um, helping us to build a bridge between Jesus' life and our lives through simply paying attention. And so we're, we're looking at the stories that are often told in the lectionary during Epiphany in the Gospels this morning. Our story is in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. And my prayer, as I've been saying every week, is that as we revisit these stories, maybe afresh, that in 2021, that as it intersects with our lives, we might see something new, something different, that our attention may be drawn, and we may see the light of God speaking to us and shining forth in our lives. Um, I want to tell you about an experience I had in 2004. I had the great privilege of visiting Lebanon and Syria, both of those countries in the one trip. I was a teenager, and I'd never been um, to the Middle East before. In fact, looking back, I had never been outside of a Western society or culture before at all. So this is my first experience of a culture that was completely different. And, I'd be and I had been invited to join a group to go out and visit, to experience the culture and to pray and just to learn a lot about Middle Eastern culture. And it was a special experience. Um, I remember the time in Lebanon uh, particularly. And then we moved um, into Syria during that two-week trip. And um, Lebanon was special, but there was a lot of Western hallmarks in Lebanon. It was, it was Syria that seemed to be the real focus of this trip because of the culture shift was going to be so different to what we were used to. In a sense, stepping into Syria and uh, particularly visiting the city of Damascus was going to be like stepping into a whole different world completely um, with no signs really of the Western world at all. Um, I remember us all gearing up to cross the border. We had the, there was a nervous energy with the group. Uh, there was about 16 of us. And then we were getting our paperwork ready, our visas and our passports. And then we split up into, uh, I think, about six different taxis, um, three or four of us in each. I remember the taxis being these large, unwieldy cars, like um, made, made in the 60s, I think. And they had like curtains over the side windows. So you could like pull the curtains back and they were sort of a little dark inside and had this really unique smell. And there was some Arabic radio music, uh, music playing on the radio. Um, I just remember that the, the, the taxi driver obviously didn't speak any, any English. And um, there was all sorts of um, religious paraphernalia just hanging from the uh, rear view mirror in this taxi. And we all piled into these taxis. And of course, the taxi driver as I said, didn't speak a, a word of English. And I remember the taxi that I got into as we tried to cross the border into, into Syria. We had, a, we had a tour guide with the group called Tony. And I remember Tony getting us into the taxi and instructing the, instructing the taxi driver um, in Arabic to uh, take us to a certain point. Um, and then he just shut the door and smiled at us and, <laughs> and waved us off. And so we were at the, we were at the, we were at the mercy of this um, taxi driver. And so here we are, about six different taxis going down the dusty roads, crossing uh, over the border into Syria. And about an hour later, we arrived in the heart of Damascus and we pulled up and we all uh, got out and sort of acquainted ourselves with one another again after that hour's journey. And we were in the public 
square in Damascus and it was just heaving with people and cars and noise and traffic without traffic rules and smells and sounds that I'd, uh, I'd never experienced before. It was actually like overwhelming, like sensory overload in a sense. I remember that experience so much and we had to figure out a way to get to our accommodation and of course um, none of us spoke the language. We were really at the mercy of Tony, our tour guide. And um, this was 2004, remember? So no smartphones, no, no Google Maps, no, not, none of that is going on. We simply had Tony, our tour guide, to take us from the, this unbelievable new world and experience. We were standing in the middle of this unique city that looked nothing like anything we'd experienced before. And he just turned to us and said, follow me follow me and we're, you know what it's like when you're in a big group in a strange city and you're trying to get like a big group of people to go from A to B it's actually quite a task for everyone to keep up and I remember the distinct feeling um, that if we didn't keep up with Tony if we didn't keep up with the pace that we would actually we would get lost we get actually properly lost that we couldn't it would be quite an ordeal to try and figure out I had no idea where we were going to be staying I had no address I had no contact information, I had no mobile phone. We simply just had to keep walking behind Tony, the tour guide, and keep up. Um, it was um, an exciting trip, but I remember that Im immediate experience of just being immersed in that such a unique culture and being nearly overwhelmed with, with it and having to follow Tony to our accommodation. Um, I remember being so mesmerized by it, sort of disorientated and, and fascinated that I was, I was taking all my surroundings in and he led us down these, these narrow streets. There was all sorts of sounds and smells and animals and market stalls and food stalls and noises coming from everywhere. And um, I remember following uh, Tony and trying to take all of this in. And um, it, was, it, was an, it was an ordeal, but we finally got to our accommodation. We stepped in off the the busy streets 20 minutes later or something into this quiet courtyard in this beautiful little hotel in the city of Damascus. And finally we had arrived and Tony got us and the gang there safely. Left, right, left, right down all these streets. Um, we finally arrived um, and it was a, it was a great trip. Um, I guess that story is just a simple story of just following someone through a, a, a strange city. Um, it's a simple story, but it reminds me so much of the story that we've just read um, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and uh, when Jesus sort of appears on the shore and calls these fishermen to follow me, that whole idea of following someone, the whole idea of following someone, particularly someone into the unknown. Um, they had no idea, these fishermen that we just read about in the story from the Gospel of Mark, what they were getting into, but there was an invitation. Uh, just like Tony turned to the gang and said, follow me. Uh, Jesus turned to them and said, follow me. And they didn't know what they were getting into. But as we read, they, they dropped their nets and they followed him. I don't know if you, if you know this, but in the scriptures, um, followers of Jesus were only referred to as Christians three times. Um, it, it wasn't a term that was being was used um, at all really frequently at that time. It, it developed in the first century. But Christians uh, in the first century were known as, as followers of the way of Jesus. As, uh, uh, they were actually known as disciples. And, and the, the word disciple, it denotes that you're actually being discipled by someone, that there is a master, that there is a teacher, there is a rabbi that you're being discipled by. Um, in the year 70, when the early church was forming in the wake of Jesus' life, 
Um, the evangelist known as Mark wrote this gospel, the first gospel, um, the first good news, the first gospel about Jesus. And the primary source um, for Mark was um, Peter, the apostle Peter. And in a way, you can think of the gospel of Mark as really Peter's memoirs. Um, you can imagine Mark intently listening to the words of Peter and writing down the stories as Peter reminisces about his experience and his adventures with Jesus. Um, so in a sense, it's like the gospel of Peter in some ways, you could say. And this story that we read about, that, that Terry just uh, has beautifully read from the first chapter, recalls the beginning of Peter's adventure. It recalls he and his fellow fishermen and it tells of the day in which this young man, a wandering prophet, appeared on the North Sea, uh, sorry, the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee, outside their little town of Capernaum. Uh, and he was, it was on a day when Peter and his fellow fishermen, his friends, were doing what they do every day. They were fishing. They were earning a living. He was there with uh, his brother Andrew and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, they're called, and they were as I say, they were attending to their vocation, their living. They were attending to their, to their boats. They were mending their nets. Their lives were normal, like they were every day. Perhaps a little humdrum, perhaps a little mundane in that sense. And then this wandering prophet appears on the shore, Jesus, and indeed turns their worlds upside down forever. The only words that we see in the Gospel of Mark are from Jesus that are spoken from Jesus. There, no one else speaks in this passage. And the words that Jesus says are this, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. This dropping of their nets, this walking away from their normal lives would have been a huge, significant decision for these uneducated men to just drop their drop their nets, so to speak, to walk away from, from their vocations and follow this, as I say, this wandering rabbi, this wandering prophet, because they were in the family business. They were um, fishing. It's all they knew. And in, in that culture, much like it is in many countries and cultures around the world, a small family business is often just handed down from generation to generation. It's handed down throughout the centuries, in fact, because it was, it was the way you did it. it was ex it's an expectation it was expected, it was safe, it was secure. They knew how to do it. And when times got tough, you didn't really change your vocation. You, you simply just worked harder. And so here they are, they're dropping their nets. They're abandoning everything and following this wandering prophet named Jesus from Galilee. So the question is, why did they do that? Why did they follow? Well, the same passage is told in Luke and it tells the story a little more fully. It fleshes it out. Jesus had just began his preaching and teaching ministry. He'd been calling people to repent, as we heard in the, in the passage there. And he was announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. He was following in the footsteps of John the Baptist. Like we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, John the Baptist had come and announced the kingdom of God. He had baptized Jesus. Now John the Baptist has actually died, and, or had been taken to prison, sorry. And Jesus has picked up the mantle, so to speak, and is coming to announce the kingdom of God is here. And he was attracting a crowd to the, sh uh, he, was, he was attracting a crowd. And in Luke, we hear that actually when Jesus appears on the shore, 
with the fisherman, he actually had a crowd with him and he, he gets into one of the boats and he actually goes out a little bit of, into the water and he teaches the people on the shore from the boat uh, and he's teaching them all about the kingdom of God. And, and after he teaches them, he turns to Peter, uh, who was pretty exhausted from, he'd been out the whole night before fishing. He turns to Peter and he says, drop your nets in the deeper parts of the sea. Uh, and Peter was just a little bit perplexed by this instruction from Jesus. And as I say, he'd been out the previous night. He'd been exhausted because they didn't catch anything. That's what the Gospel of Luke tells us. And yet he, he perplexed, he, he agrees to Jesus' request and he drops his nets in this deeper part of the sea. And amazingly, to their surprise, to Peter's surprise and all, all the others, they caught this huge amount of fish um, so big that their nets began to break, so big that they had to call for help. Uh, they had to call for others to come and help them uh, take the fish off the boat because the boat was actually sinking under the weight. And here we have this moment where Jesus appears. He's teaching a crowd, and then he, he, he has this miracle that he essentially performs. He wins at the fishing lottery. He catches this incredible haul of fish. And in a sense, Peter and his brother and his fellow fishermen are completely stunned, overwhelmed that this Jesus has done this. In fact, it says in Luke that Peter kneels before Jesus, um, gets down on his knees and, and kneels before Jesus. And Jesus then turns to him and says this, do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled up their boats on the shore. Um, Luke says, and they left everything and followed him. These two tellings of the same story, the call of the first disciples to follow Jesus. Um, and their response, as I've said, was to drop their nets, to, to abandon everything, to walk away from their family business and to follow this wandering rabbi, prophet, Jesus. Here's a couple of observations that I want to share with us this morning that I hope help us that I pick up from this story. The first thing here is that the fishermen are rethinking everything. This is one of the reasons that they follow Jesus because Jesus makes them rethink everything. The, the scriptural word for this is repentance. As I say, it means to rethink, to, to choose a different way, to turn 180 and choose a different way. The word sort of denotes a lot of activity, agency, choice, um, they are taken up with Jesus' presence and the, the magnetism of his presence with them and his personality. And they're stunned by this power, this, this power that Jesus has commanded them to do this thing. They've just brought in this amazing haul of fish. But here's the thing, in a sense, I believe it may be Jesus' priorities that bowled them over the most the reading of this story in that culture would say an awful lot about this wandering rabbi's priorities. It would say an awful lot about this kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. Because to haul in that amount of fish, that meant a lot of money. Money, mammon, provision for the people. And yet here is Jesus winning the fishing lottery, so to speak, performing a miracle, so to speak, and yet he's completely uninterested in the fish. He's completely uninterested in that. He turns immediately to Peter and to the fishermen and he invites them to follow him. 
It's simply pointing to another world, another way of doing life. And the fishermen here, and Peter particularly, they realize their inadequacy, the inadequacy of their values, the inadequacy perhaps of their priorities, what is important in life. And they're compelled to rethink everything, to rethink everything they thought was important and indeed to enter into this new venture of the kingdom of God that Jesus was announcing. The new life for the disciples of repenting and of following and of being fishers of men, telling of the good news and inviting others into that story. They realize that that is what their priority should be. And they, they realize that this wandering prophet, this wandering rabbi Jesus, who's calling them and beckoning, beckoning them to follow him, that he has different priorities he has a different way, that they're in the presence of someone who's living according to different rules, different way, and it causes them to rethink everything. Here's the second observation from this story. Ruthless trust. So rethinking everything and then ruthless trust. The concept of following someone, the concept of dedicating your life to someone is very different from believing in someone. It's because to follow, it speaks of movement forward and trust is required. Many times in the scriptures, the people of God are instructed to remember, to look back, to remember what God has done. We even were reading words to that effect in the psalm this morning as we read it in our call to worship to look back and remember the story of God's deliverance and his mighty acts and his mighty deeds in the past. Here's Jesus, the wandering prophet, the wandering rabbi on the shore, the shores of the Sea of Galilee, inviting them into a new way forward, a new future. Here is Jesus inviting them into a ruthless trust, one step at a time. Because they didn't know where it was going to lead. And indeed, it's the same for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We don't know where this following will lead. Jesus says to them, you'll be catching people now. But did they know what that really meant? Did they know what the people around them would be thinking? Did they have an inkling at that moment when they were dropping their nets and following Christ that, that both of them, Peter and Andrew, would end up being crucified upside down? Would, would, would they know that their master would be crucified? Did, did James, the brother of John, have the slightest idea that within a few years he would be killed on the orders of Herod? I don't think they would have. I don't think they would have. And yet they just take that step forward. But then Peter also wouldn't have known that his master would resurrect, that the church would be built upon him the rock, that there would be a huge church established right at the heart of the empire in Rome, dedicated to Peter's memory. Well, I guess Andrew wouldn't have realized that countries today actually consider him as their patron saint. They were just uneducated fishermen doing their normal everyday lives in the boats when a wandering prophet rolled up on the shore and called them to follow him. I guess things change when Jesus is in the room. They didn't know where it was going to lead, but neither do 
way much like that experience I had getting out of the taxis in Damascus and following Tony, the tour guide. I had no idea where I was going in that little story. Just kept following Tony's trail, kept moving forward, kept fixing our eyes on our leader, kept trusting that he knew what he was doing. And I guess that's really all there is to it. If only it were so easy. I guess the Christian life can be summed up by simply these words of Jesus, come follow me. Rethink everything and then place your ruthless trust in me. We may not know where it leads or how it will work out. I guess for many of us tuning in this morning at the beginning of our lives, when we sort of following Christ, maybe we were, we were, we were really sure about that. We, were, we knew what that maybe looked like or what was, it was like exciting and a delight to put our faith in Christ to throw ourselves into this new chapter of our lives to choose to follow the way of love. Maybe some years later, perhaps, where, I don't know, where are you in your journey? Where are we? Are we still following? Are we not quite too sure? The thing is, tough times do come, but the invitation continues to be given. The invitation remains. The words of Jesus remain this morning. They remain today. To not be afraid to follow him, to ruthlessly trust, even in the toughest times, even when there's hardship, even when there's suffering that comes, like Peter and Andrew were going to learn, even when the darkness settles in, even when there is dismay or restlessness, or there is, in fact, the, uh, the humdrum of normal life that returns. Out of all of that, if we continue to follow will come this ability to really follow, to really know an inexpressible and wonderful joy, to know Jesus and follow him through the toughest times um, and through the best of times. A few years ago, I was going through a, a tough time myself. And I, just, I really just wasn't sure where I was going. I wasn't sure where my life was going at all, to be honest. I remember a friend, Alan, reminding me to not, at the time I was pretty preoccupied with looking to other people and the directions that they were going, the directions that they were taking, the choices that they were making. And I remember my friend Alan, he turned to me and he said, listen, David, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. And he reminded me of the passage um, after Jesus' resurrection when, when, when Jesus walks on the beach with Peter after they've been through all they've been through. Um, he reminded me of that story. Um, and Peter in that story, if you remember, he's failed Jesus. He's denied him three times. And Jesus builds him up and says, Peter, follow me. Peter, feed my sheep. Follow me, feed my sheep. And Peter says, what about John? What about that guy? And Jesus turns to him and says, don't pay attention to John, Peter. Follow me. And it's beautiful. The symmetry in the story of Peter is beautiful. We see follow me at the start. We see follow me on the beach after the resurrection when Jesus recommissions Peter. It's beautiful. So even when we rule, uh, perhaps rule ourselves out in the way Peter ruled himself out uh, on the beach after Jesus' resurrection, or maybe when he was comparing his journey to other people, I guess Jesus speaks that to us this morning. If we've ruled ourselves out of this story, of this journey, if we've been following other ways or comparing ourselves and our path to other people's paths, Jesus' invitation still stands and still remains. Don't pay attention to what others are doing. Keep your eyes fixed on me. 
follow me. The invitation remains to rethink everything around the kingdom of God and to ruthlessly trust in the wandering rabbi. It reminds me of the verse in Hebrews 12 that says this, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The way Jesus taught his first disciples was not unique. But it was part of this wider tradition in Judaism. And I'll finish with this. This wider tradition to follow began a few centuries before. Jesus didn't hand his disciples a textbook or give them a syllabus. He actually asked them to follow him, which literally meant to walk after him. And he invited them to trek with him by the byways, by his side, living life beside him to learn from him as they journeyed. And his disciples would engage in life's activities along the way with him. They would observe Jesus' responses. They would imitate how he lived. And out of that unusual teaching, there arose a really well-known saying that you would learn from a rabbi by, quote, covering yourself in his dust. That you would, you would follow so closely behind him as he traveled down dusty roads from town to town, teaching that there would be billows of sandy granules that would cling to your clothes, that you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi as you walked after your rabbi, and in effect, your heart would be changed. There's two Hebrew words for walking. One means literally to walk after, and another speaks more of walking like walking the walk, the lifestyle, the teachings and following the teachings. Jesus is, is, is meaning both of these things when he calls these fishermen to follow him. He means follow me literally, follow me, get dust on you, follow me literally, but also follow me in your way, in your lifestyle, in your choices. And there's another word that that denotes in Hebrew, which means road or path or way. That's often how the people of God were referred to in the New Testament, people of the way. Um, and the imagery here is not of tarmac pavements or tarmac roads like we have. It means it's more like the tracks that are left behind by, by people's footprints. And some of these paths lead to good places. Some of these paths lead to not so good places. And so your way as a spiritual metaphor was was how you lived your life. And it's still true today that Jesus invites us to follow him, to cover ourselves in his dust, to put our, our, foot, our feet in his footprints. Um, he bids us to follow him in that way, to orientate ourselves around him. So this morning, as you think about the story of the fishermen on the shore of Galilee, we think about the miracle of Jesus, if we think about his call to Peter and the fellow disciples to come and follow me, as we think about how they rethought everything in light of this, the priorities of the wandering rabbi, as they placed their ruthless trust in Jesus, not knowing where it would lead, we're reminded this morning that this is our calling, that this is what it means to be a Christian, to follow our rabbi, Jesus, as a disciple so closely that we're covered in his dust, that we look 
and smell a little bit like our master Jesus and to place our feet in his footprints so that we imitate his beautiful way in the world, his way of love, so that we rethink everything, so that we respond with abandon, so that we ruthlessly trust and so that we become fishers of men. We, we invite others into this story of love, of grace, of peace, a way that is completely other than the story of this world. I trust that this word encourages you this morning to keep on following Jesus, to keep on pursuing him, to be covered in his dust, to keep on trusting in him, even in these difficult times.